First thing I need to do is bid a fond farewell to a little furry friend. Here's a hug, a bacon treat, and a little woof for Silky. Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. There comes a point when you're just having so many technical difficulties that you just have to throw your arms up in the air and go, whatever. <laughs> Not only is this broken recorder session number two, this is now also broken audacity session number one. So audacity keeps crashing. Um, I did manage to get all of the readings into a file as well as all my intro and so forth. Um, and now I can't, I can't do anything in Audacity without it crashing. So I'm looking into that. But meanwhile, I have an episode to put out. So I thought I would uh, give a try. And I was successful at at least moving that file <laughs> that I had already created uh, here into GarageBand, which is the first audio editing uh, and creation software I ever used, actually. Um when I was doing stuff for the middle school and the high school for musical theater and that sort of thing. So, and that's actually how I recorded my theme song. So we'll see how this goes. If you hear music in this episode, you'll know I was successful. Now, personally, I think that one of a good thing is never enough. I mean, if you have one cookie, why not have two? So, welcome to the Broken Recorder Sessions number two. This week, I have an intriguing collection of readings, quite a variety. And if there isn't something in here that makes you want to find out more, I would be very surprised. We have romance, historical fiction, YA science fiction, and a supernatural thriller. So just like last week, each author's details are in their individual recordings, as well as in the episode as well as in the episode description on Podbean and the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page. Leslie Wibberley just happens to be a friend of my sister-in-law, but I met her at the Creative Inc. Festival for Readers and Writers. Turns out her daughter was in a show I directed at the middle school years ago. So, tiny little world we live in. Anyway, we were at Creative Inc. and Leslie tells me she had submitted a story to the writing contest. And that she'd submitted lots of pieces here and there but hadn't had any takers. And then, that weekend, she won the contest. So I truly get to say, I knew her when. She hadn't yet had any takers, and now she has had all kinds of successes. Today she's not reading that story, but I will let her tell you the story of this story. Good afternoon. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Krista, for inviting us all as authors. Um, my name is Leslie Wibberley, and I am a former physio turned writer. I write across a variety of age groups and genres, though I have a passion for uh, speculative fiction. And this story had its origins as a 2,000-word short story for the New York City 
short story contest. Uh, it was written to three prompts, ghost story, butler, and paralysis. And this is what I came up with. And I, I actually loved the story so much that I decided to extend it. I made it a 4,000 word story. And then on a whim, I entered it in Writer's Digest Popular Fiction Awards. And to my surprise and delight, on my birthday, I found out that it won first place in the romance category. And it's called Just a Little Push. The choppy waves toss the ferry back and forth as we approach the shore. I wonder again why I thought this was a good idea. Nantucket in summer is happy crowds, cerulean skies, and sandy beaches. Nantucket in November is slate-colored water, dried brown grass, and icy winds, a far less inviting prospect. The scenery might be spectacular, especially for a photographer like me, but that's not what brought me here. I came because of a strange, almost mystical dream. One I've had every night for a month now, since the second anniversary of my husband Danny's death. My best friend Jane tells me Danny sent the dream because there's something he wants me to do before I can move on. I laugh and tell her, no, it's because I read too many ghost stories. This dream, though, is too vivid to ignore. In it, I'm striding down a cobblestone street towards a two-story clapboard with dusty gray shingles and a sapphire-colored door. Elegant blue script set in a white sign announces the Magnolia House Bed and Breakfast. I always wake as soon as I step through the bright blue door. The dream leaves me with an urgent longing to visit Nantucket, the island of my ancestors, an uncompromising certainty that if I do, the pieces that has eluded me since Danny's death will finally be mine. So here I stand, bones turned to ice despite a woolen coat and thick red scarf, while the wind attempts to turn my auburn curls into a bird's nest, all the while questioning my sanity. The ferry docks with a bump and, for good or bad, I've arrived. I fully expect to wander the streets aimlessly. Instead, the instant my feet hit solid ground, my legs propel me towards some unknown destination. The cobblestone street is lined with trees that arch gracefully overhead. No doubt they provide blissful shade during the heat of summer, but on this cool gray day, their barren branches fill me with a sense of unease. Many of the shops are closed for the season, dark windows adding another layer of discomfort to my expanding trepidation. I shake my head at the folly of this trip, but keep walking. Ten minutes later, and there it is. The Magnolia House Bed and Breakfast. Brick steps lead up to the sapphire door. Beside the stairs, almost hidden by a patch of ivy, a winding ramp runs up the side of the building. Shock steals my breath. There's no way I should know this place exists. I've never been to Nantucket, and I'd found no place with this name when I searched online. The world spins in a dizzying circle. I have to grab the wooden railing at the side of the steps to stop from toppling over. I take slow, deep breaths to calm myself. When the spinning stops, I climb the stairs and twist the handle of the bright blue door. A bell dings as I step hesitantly through the doorway. The light in the entrance is dim, the air filled with a calming mixture of lemon and lavender. I scan the space. A long rectangular rug in shades of crimson and blue covers a wide planked floor. At the far wall is a wooden counter backed by a shelving unit. A woman walks in from the back room and stands behind the counter. Tall and angular, with silver hair swept up in a tidy bun, her face is wreathed in a wide smile. Good afternoon, miss. May I help you? 
she asks, her accent proper and precise. I, I think I want a room, I stutter, my voice a thin thread. Do you have any available? The woman laughs, a soft musical sound. It's November, my dear. All my rooms are available. She flashes me a wry smile. Did someone recommend us to you? I shake my head, unwilling to share my odd dream. I'm not sure how you found us, though I'm happy you did. I don't advertise online. We're not big on such things. Word of mouth recommendations keep me plenty busy in the summer, and I appreciate the quiet of the off season. My gaze travels across the wide entrance. This place is beautiful. Her eyes light up. Yes, it belonged to my husband's family. They're all gone now. There's only my son and me. He moved here two years ago. She picks up a pair of wide-rimmed glasses and slips them on. Have you been to Nantucket before? No, this is my first visit. I should probably warn you, Nantucket is one of the most haunted places in the country, though mostly are ghosts or of the friendly sort. I've read a bit of the island's history. My family lived here a few generations back, and I wouldn't be afraid if I met a ghost. I've always been fascinated by stories of the supernatural. She smiles, a glint in her eyes. Well, if that's the case, you should enjoy your time on Nantucket. She enjoyed opening the register. She asks, how long are you planning to stay? Mm, I'm not sure. No need to fret. As I said, all our rooms are available. You can stay as long as you need. We have a lovely room overlooking the water. Includes all meals, plus wine or beer and snacks each afternoon between three and six. You're welcome to enjoy those on the back porch. My son had some fancy propane heaters installed, so it's quite nice with a blanket tucked around you. Giving me no chance to reply, she adds, yes, this should suit you just fine. She names a price and slides a registry towards me. You can pay when you leave. I just need a credit card to put on your account. She hands me an old-fashioned brass key. Thank you, I say, thrilled at the reasonable price. I give her my card and take the key, its weight comforting in my hand. The room is on the second floor, bright, spacious, and decorated in chains of cream and rose. I flop on the, down on the king-size bed with its fluffy comforter and giant pillows. The mattress is divine. I'm tempted to curl up and take a nap, but when I pick up my watch, I see that it's five o'clock. Just enough time to enjoy the promised refreshments. And, more importantly, try and figure out what has brought me to this place. I head downstairs and through the wide French doors at the back of the house. The covered porch faces the restless sea. The sky is just beginning to transition to a deep cobalt as I step outside into the brisk wind that whistles and keens. Overhead, gulls scream a counter-melody to the crash of waves against the shore. The slow rhythm tugs at something in my belly. It melts a little more of the tension I've carried forever, it seems, though only since Danny's death. Wrought iron tables are scattered across the wide porch. White wicker chairs with plump cushions and shades of aubergine and mauve invite me to sit and forget about my troubles. I settle into a chair beneath a glowing red heater, wrap myself in the blanket the color of new heather, and wait. After a minute, I began to wonder if I should have ordered something before coming out. Good afternoon, miss. I brought you some refreshments, says a deep voice from behind me. I jump, almost slipping from the chair. An elderly man with a receding hairline and solemn face glides to the front of the table. He's impeccably dressed in an old-fashioned black tuxedo, complete with a jaunty bow tie. I stare at his pristine white gloves, taken aback by his formal appearance. Good heavens, they have a butler? 
He gives a little bow and sets a tray filled with an assortment of tiny sandwiches and petit fours on the table. My stomach grumbles. I hadn't realized how hungry I am. He removes a small teapot covered with delicate blue flowers from his tray. He adds a matching cup and saucer and lays a linen napkin across my lap. Would you care for some tea? Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you. Something about his lying face seems familiar. Very well, he says and pours my tea. The wind tugs the blanket from my lap. I bend to retrieve it, and when I straighten, he's gone. He certainly moves fast for an old man. The sandwiches are wonderful, watercress and cucumber, just like a traditional high tea. I eat three and four of the small cakes, the taste of cinnamon and vanilla, and take a sip of my tea. Pure heaven. I lean back and inhale the fresh air, savoring the faint scent of seaweed and salt. The heater, heater radiates warmth against my face, and the blanket is cozy. Surprised by a sense of homecoming, I close my eyes and smile as the last remnants of tension release. Perhaps this wasn't such a bad idea after all. And that's a little break for you. And if anyone is interested in reading the rest of that story, it's actually online at writersdigest.com under their competitions and my name, Leslie Liberley. I did that. I went online to Writer's Digest and found the rest of this story. It was easy to find and it was a lovely read. Those descriptions are so evocative. Congratulations on that contest win, Leslie. I can't wait to see more of her work. I met Mari Reed at the Surrey International Writers Conference in about 2001, I think. We've kept in touch ever since, and she helped me through a tough time. She writes the Caleb Cove murder mystery series set in her homeland of Nova Scotia, but today she's reading from a different Nova Scotia-based story, The Left Behind Bride. Good afternoon, everyone, or morning, if that's where you are. My name is Mari G. Reed, and I have been a writer since I was eight years old. I've been working at writing for the past 35 years, have five published books, teach a lot of workshops, and I'm happy to be here to read to you today from The Left Behind Bride. This is inspired by my mother's life. It is not her story, but there are equivalent events throughout this book. It's about a widow, a war widow, between the First and Second World Wars. We're starting here with Maggie and her cousin, Eloise. And Maggie's father has just died. And so they are dealing with this. And we get to know a little bit about Maggie. Elsie prompted, turning her knees until they touch Maggie's legs. Tell me, tell me about your husband. We were married six weeks when he went to war. Six months, two weeks, and one day later, he died in a battle in France. His best friend sent me the news. That heart-smashing letter lay in the bottom of the box, unopened since that first reading. No one official knew that we were even married, so the army still listed his parents as his next of kin. Official notice and his belongings went to them. Maggie folded the marriage certificate and stuck it back in the box. 
and it didn't feel real for ages since there was no funeral. At least now with Dad, I can feel I've said goodbye. Oh, that's so sad, but romantic, Elsie said, especially with his parents getting his belongings. She put a hand on Maggie's arm. I'm sorry you lost him. Thank you. Almost 10 years gone, gone but not forgotten, although the intensity has faded. Elsie bit the left side of her lip. Can I ask you, she said, can you tell me what it's like to be, well, you know, to sleep with a man? Maggie nudged Elsie with her shoulder, a question she might have asked if she'd known anyone well enough back in the day. It isn't the sleeping you want to know about, is it? It's the other part. She couldn't help teasing her cousin. Well, yes. I can't ask mother now, can I? Elsie blushed. She wouldn't tell me anyway. I mean, we have cows, and I know a bit about the, well, you know, but that's not people. Maggie thought back. There were the physical sensations and the absolute connection she felt. Do you remember, she asked, years ago when we went skinny dipping? Elsie nodded. You remember that sensation of the river running over your body? The buoyant perception of being held? How soft and tingly it felt? Yes, Elsie said, suddenly breathless. Loving James reminded me of that. Maggie's body came to life under her memories. Only more so, except for the first time. She shot her cousin a glance. There's a part a bit like stepping on a sharp rock, only it's not your foot. And that's okay, too. And that's all I'm going to tell you. The connection part defied words. Elsie's exaggerated sigh worst out of her. <clears throat> well, that's more than I knew before, she said. But what about Will, Will Kaiser? You were going to marry him, weren't you? Yes, Maggie's relationship with Will had been different, but every bit as intense. James was dash in excitement, always ready for adventure. With him, her pulse raced for more than one reason. Will personified stability, tinged with a slow, dry sense of humor. Life with him would have been predictable, but comfortable. Losing him had torn a second hole in her heart. What about now? Do you want to be married? Mother says you need a man to take care of you. Elsie rolled her eyes. She says the same about me. But it's not that easy, is it? A grin snuck across Maggie's face. With my track record, I don't think a man would be wise to marry me. It might foretell his death. Getting married is complicated. She summoned what she did know. I always thought I'd be married, have a family, grow old with a husband. But the war arrived, and the Spanish flu, and the August gales, and now I'm almost 30. She twisted her mouth. And now I know marriage isn't the insurance they'd like us to believe for either party. Look at Dad. Mom died 10 years ago. He lost two children in the flu. Now he's dead of a heart attack much too soon. What good did being married do for him? But he was content, wasn't he? And he had you and Ivan. I suppose so, but I think a spouse is a different connection. 
but what do I know? Now, Maggie said briskly and stood up. Enough lollygagging. Let's get to the breakfast. She glanced out the window. We can hope the weather clears and everyone gets here for the funeral. Maggie eyed the custom-made coffin with its black outer shell and white inner tucker. Her father's friend Chester had made the box and Chester's wife fitted the tucker. It's a some fine box, Dad, and it fits you perfectly. She adjusted his collar. We're sending you off as you wished. No tie and lots of tobacco. She smiled. Her father would have appreciated the sentiment. Ivan entered, shoving the door shut behind him. Already people were gathering in the kitchen. A boat from the mainland just arrived, he said. Before the door closed fully, Daisy clicked her doggy feet over the floor and raced to the coffin. She put her feet up and scratched, whining. She didn't understand what had happened to her master. If you would like to read the rest of the story, it's called The Left Behind Bride by Mari G. Reed, R-E-I-D. You want a good read, honey, you read, read. It'll do you good. It is available on all of the various sites uh, published by BW Publishing. You can learn more about me. You can follow my how-to articles if you happen to be a writer on www.marigreed.com. I look forward to meeting you through the internet and you folks all have a great day. Mari's work in progress is called Tools Not Rules. It's a handbook for beginning writers and I love this concept because the idea is to make suggestions and talk about different approaches to writing that can work for different people. I have a really tough time when someone says, you must do it this way, because chances are I don't do it that way. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to checking this out. Nicole Iverson is another friend I met at the Creative Inc. Festival a few years ago. I can't remember how many years ago, but you're probably noticing that I've met a lot of my writer friends at conferences and conventions. That's why they're so great. We've had a lot of terrific online solutions to attending conferences and conventions, such as When Words Collide in August. That was amazing, but I really miss the in-person experience. Anyway, I'm really pleased that Nicole contributed some YA science fiction to this episode. She reads an excerpt from Game Over, in which a 15-year-old engineer who uses a wheelchair teams up with her friends, all of whom have varying disabilities, to stop a villain who's robbing banks. Here's Nicole. Hi, I'm Nicole Iverson, and I'd like to thank Krista for asking me to participate in these readings. You can find my work in anthologies such as Alice Unbound and Brave New Girls and online at Polar Borealis. I'll be reading an excerpt of my short story, Game Over, found in the anthology Brave New Girls, Adventures of Gals and Gizmos. Hope you enjoy. Jacinta jumped over the boulder, rolled along the ground, and landed perfectly on her knees. She pointed the gun at the alien and fired, but the shot ricocheted off one of its horns. It roared in anger, and Jacinta ran for cover behind more rock. The flames of its fire breath hit the boulder she hid behind, but she was well protected. Jay, you all right? Over. I'm fine, Adam, Jacinta replied through her communicator. 
The fire stopped and she felt the ground shake as the alien stomped away. Where is it? Over. It's walking off toward Mikey and Stacy. To your left. I don't have a clear shot. Over. I'm taking it, Jacinta informed Adam, cocking the gun. She took a deep breath, grasping the gun in both leather-clad hands. Her heart thumped while her shirt stuck to her back from sweat. It was now or never. This is what the last three months had been about. Planning how to exterminate the alien, save the planet, then go home. Jacinta crouched along the ground behind the cover of rocks. Rock made up the entire planet, and for the past year, the alien had terrorized the workers at the quarry. It was up to Jacinta and her team to put a stop to it. Half the team lay dead, completely incinerated, and she would never see them again. This was the end. The large, fire-breathing alien looked like a cross between a dragon and a crocodile. It cast fire over the workers' machinery, where Jacinta knew Adam sat in cover. She came up behind the alien, pointed her gun, and took the shot. The bullet flew through the air, hitting the red and white bullseye on the alien's back. Yes! Adam yelled through the communicator. Yet nothing happened, and Jacinta's smile faded as the alien turned around. Before she could understand what happened, the alien opened its gigantic mouth and rained fire down onto her. Game over. Jacinta screamed as the virtual reality goggles lifted up off her face. When she realized she wasn't on fire, she stopped screaming, but she could see nothing but blurred shapes. You're all right, said a soothing female voice. Your eyesight will return to normal shortly. Jacinta calmed down and soon her vision cleared. A woman in purple leather stood next to her, taking out her two IVs, one to keep her hydrated, the other to track her heart rate. Next to her, Mikey and Stacy had just gotten out of the game, but across from her, Adam was still playing. He shouldn't be too much longer, said the woman. One player can't play without the team. As if to prove her point, Adam's, goggle, Adam's goggles lifted, and he yelled while patting himself to put out a fire that wasn't there. She pointed at him, then moved her thumb in a circle, asking if he was all right. Adam nodded, raised his fist, and moved it up and down, signing back yes. An attendant handed him his black-rimmed glasses. Another attendant maneuvered Jacinta's wheelchair next to her seat. I shot the alien's bullseye, said Jacinta. Why didn't we win? The bullseye is a decoy, answered the attendant. You were supposed to use the machinery in the quarry to defeat the alien. Jacinta huffed before turning, transferring to her wheelchair. Stacy held her walking stick with one hand and patted down her blonde pixie cut with the other. Has it really been three months? she asked. Yes, confirmed the attendant. Jacinta pouted, which means we have to go back to school in a few weeks. They were going into grade 10, but no one was looking forward to the end of summer. Adam tapped Jacinta on the shoulder and signed that maybe they could play again. Can we play again? Jacinta asked. Sorry, said the attendant. You're the last group of teens we're letting play. The list for the adults keeps growing, she sighed. It's going to be a long winter. Jacinta signed the response to Adam, and his mouth turned down. It was time to go back to reality. A few days later at Adam's house, they all sat around the large table with their character sheets in front of them. Yet, instead of the usual silliness that occurred when they played the role-playing game, they sat in silence. Mikey sighed. It isn't the same, is it? Look, we've always had fun playing this game, said Stacy. We still can. We're the madcap handicaps. Some virtual reality game shouldn't change that. 
I agree, said Jacinta. Besides, it's been three months since we last played, and we need to defeat the villainous space elves. Where did we leave off? asked Stacy. They all looked to the group master, Mikey, who cracked his knuckles and reviewed his notes to tell the story. The evil sorcerer of Elf Caselrod destroyed planet Kryptonia. The king of the Slore system summoned the madcap handicaps to defend the galaxy. The mighty space dwarf, who steals any piece of technology he can get his hands on, Thiefark. He flourished his hands toward Adam, and they all smiled in spite of themselves at Mikey's enthusiasm. <clears throat> the space werewolf, fiercely loyal if you can stay on their good side, and a skilled hunter and killer. I still think you should change the name. Wolfsey. No way, Stacy replied. At least I gave him a bionic arm like your leg. Mikey looked ready to argue, but shook his head. Last, and somewhat least, Sophie the Space Ranger. There's nothing wrong with the Space Ranger, Jacinta defended her character. You didn't even make her magical. She's just an ordinary human. There's also nothing wrong with just being human. But this is a game, Mikey argued. She could have been anything. At least changelings are relatable and cool at the same time. I'll let you change her class. Maybe get rid of her handicap? I want her to be in a wheelchair. But you can make her perfect. The room went silent. As Mikey realized what he'd said, his face changed and he lowered his eyes. Jay, I'm sorry. Jacinta didn't make eye contact with him. It's okay, she mumbled. From the corner of her eye, Jacinta saw Adam smack Mikey's shoulder. Hey! Apologize, Adam signed. I did, said Mikey. I am sorry. I didn't mean anything by it. Mikey might not have meant anything, but he had said the words. He must have thought them, even in the back of his mind. Jacinta knew she wasn't perfect, but who was? Was a person perfect because they could walk? because they didn't have a handicap? They all sat in silence once more. Adam glared at Mikey and Jacinta stared at the table. The door to the games room opened with a bang as Adam's mom rushed in. Someone broke into the National Bank. Adam's mom went to the TV and switched it on. They all crowded behind Jacinta in front of the TV, listening to the news reporter while Adam read the subtitles. A masked figure flying on a scooter crashed through the window of the National Bank earlier this evening. Jacinda's mouth fell open as they watched a video taken from a cell phone of a person standing on a scooter do just as the reporter described. Glass flew everywhere and someone on the video screamed. They'd have to have a strong engine to fly through the air on that kind of scooter. Mikey and Stacy looked down at her, but Jacinta shrugged. She knew engines. Looking back at the TV, the video showed the masked person flying away with several bags of money hanging off the scooter. The suspect was not able to take much, and no one was hurt. Authorities are stumped, as there are no leads as to the identity of this ingenious thief. If anyone has any information, they are to call the police. Adam's mom turned off the TV and faced them. I have to call everyone I know. She ran out of the room, and they all returned to the table. A knock on the table made them raise their faces at Adam. Did you notice his outfit? Jacinta recognized Jacinta had recognized the red leather outfit complete with black cape. A silver plague mask covered his face, and a purple tricorn hat sat on their head. It was an outfit they'd seen almost every day for the past three months. It was General Craig's outfit, Adam signed. From the VR game? asked Stacy. He's right, said Mikey. That was General Craig, right down to the mask. 
Man, he was scary, even scarier than that alien. He wasn't much of a villain, said Jacinta. He was easier to defeat than that alien. Well, his name means Cliff, and he lived on a cliff. It wasn't that difficult to figure out what to do with him. Everyone rolled their eyes at Stacy, and Mikey threw a die at her but missed. His outfit wasn't the only recognizable thing, said Jacinta. In one of the clips, the person stroked the nose of the plague mask, just like General Craig did. Mikey nodded. Creepy! The madcap handicaps didn't defend the galaxy that night as they discussed the bank robber. Characters in games or books didn't exist. So who on earth would dress themselves up as a fictional character? So that's the end of this excerpt. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll want to look into more. Again, this is from the anthology Brave New Girls, Adventures of Gals and Gizmos. Thank you. So Brave New Girls are a series of YA science fiction anthologies with the hope of encouraging girls to go into STEM. The proceeds of each anthology are donated to the Society of Women Engineers. As Nicole said, Game Over can be found in Adventures of Gals and Gizmos, which came out in summer 2019. And yet another friend from Creative Inc., Stephanie Galay. She has just released her first novel, a supernatural thriller called Evergreen, and I'm really pleased she sent me a reading. It has a super cool cover you can check out on Amazon and on her website. Hi, my name is Stephanie Galay, and I've recently just released my first novel, Evergreen. It's available uh, in paperback and uh Kindle, Kindle Unlimited on Amazon. And I guess the first place or the best place to start is at the beginning. So here we go. This is Evergreen by Stephanie Galay. Chapter one. 10.53 p.m. The last of the daylight was gone. My headlight cut swaths out of the darkness to reveal short lengths of yellow lines ahead. Evergreen was the last place in the world I wanted to be going, but my parents' death two days ago had left me no choice. A highway sign seemed to flash a neon as I drove past. Evergreen, 56 miles. My chest tightened. I took a few deep breaths and lit a cigarette to relax. Liz... Make sure you get here before midnight. Shelley's warning echoed in my head as I drove. The fog hasn't been deadly since high school, but it still burns. I glanced at the time on my dash. 11.08 p.m. Oh, shit. This is going to be close. I pressed harder on the gas. My fingers found the volume on the stereo. The music vibrated through my seat, untangling the knot in my stomach. The closer I got to my hometown, the faster my memories came. My friends, my parents, the fog that had become caustic and deadly after midnight, the real-life nightmare that made me leave in the first place. Five years away hadn't erased a single scar from my soul. The flat highway started to roll out over the foothills that surround my hometown. Patches of mist obscured my view. 
My foot eased off the pedal to reduce my speed. Clear air diminished, the mist became fog, and the heat of the late summer night was doused. I shivered, traded my open window for the heater. A slow burn developed in my shoulders and spread into my neck and upper back. I realized I was leaning toward the windshield, a useless attempt to see farther down the road. As I leaned back against my seat, my phone buzzed. My arms jerked at the unexpected sound and I swerved across the center line. I corrected my steering, then peeked at the phone mounted on my dash. A text from Shelly, 11.46 p.m. It's almost midnight, where are you? I glanced back at the road. The welcome sign was barely visible through the thickening fog. The town limits were within reach and safety was only a few more minutes away. A rush of adrenaline burned cold through my veins. One more cigarette. I drew the smoke deep into my lungs. My heart raced with the flood of nicotine in my blood, then skipped a beat when my phone buzzed again. 11.52 p.m. Shelly, seriously, where are you, Liz? Eight minutes. I wiped my hands on my thighs one at a time, then swished a sip of water around my mouth to quench the dryness. As I drove under the first streetlights of town, I took a final drag off my cigarette. When I rolled down my window to throw out the butt, the cold dampness of the fog prickled my skin. I closed the window and dropped the butt into my water bottle instead. Another text from Shelley, 11.55 p.m. Are you here? A minute later, Shelley's apartment building came into view. I activated the hands-free and called her. Cutting it a bit close, don't you think? She asked with so much as, without so much as a hello. I know, I know. Come down and let me in, okay? I'm parking out front. 11.59 p.m. glared back at me from the dash as I cut the engine, wrenched my bag from the back seat. I jumped out of my car and bolted across the street. Fog smelled like burnt sugar and rotting oranges and stung my exposed skin like lime juice over an open wound. Shelly opened the door and let me squeeze through, then pulled hard to force it close behind me. Neither of us said a word as we hurried toward the elevator and rode it to the penthouse suite. Shelly ushered me through her door, then closed and locked it behind us. Before I could move toward the hall, she grabbed me in a firm hug. Ugh, take it easy. Shelly loosened her grip. You're my best friend, and I haven't seen you in forever. She unwrapped her arms, but kept a hold of me. Not to mention that you scared the hell out of me tonight. Her green eyes mirrored the concern in her voice. Shelly dropped her hands to her hips and I put my bag down. I rubbed, my rubbed at my forearms. They no longer hurt, but the exposure to the midnight fog had left my skin red and irritated. I'm sorry. I knew the timing would be tight, but I felt like I needed to get here tonight. I needed a familiar face, a real friend, you know? The threat of tears increased with each word. Shelley's posture softened. She nodded and flipped her long blonde hair over her shoulder. She took my bag and gestured toward the great room at the end of the short hallway. Why don't you go sit down? I'll take this to your room. Her voice was quiet and soothing as Shelley scooted past me and turned down the corridor I assumed led to the bedrooms. I wandered past the open kitchen and into the living room surveying the space as I crossed to the sofa. A bar top counter separated the kitchen from the living room and the high ceilings made this ample space feel even bigger. 
Behind the couch, a picture window offered an expansive view over the park, now shrouded in dense fog that blanketed the entire town. Not even the streetlights were getting through now, so I closed the drapes and sank into the oversized sofa. I pulled the elastic out of my hair and ran my fingers through the wavy light brown mess. Shelley returned with two glasses of wine. She handed one to me, then took a sip from hers before sitting beside me with one foot tucked up under her athletic frame. I've missed you, Liz. I've missed you too. Have you got have you gotten any more information about your parents' accident? Nothing. Nothing more than we already knew, and none of that makes any sense. There were no other cars involved. The road conditions were favorable, and as far as they can tell, the car was mechanically sound, so I don't know. I traced along the rim of the I traced along the rim of the glass with my finger. It's like they ran into an invisible wall or something. I raised my glass to my lips. Light glinted off the moisture in my friend's eyes. I can't believe they're gone. Shelley's voice cracked. I just had dinner with them a week ago. They loved you. Mom always referred to you as my sister, even when we were kids. I think she wished you were. Shelley reached a hand toward my knee, but diverted when her phone rang. She answered it before I could glimpse the name on the screen. Yeah, she made it. She couldn't have cut it any closer. She'd meant to, though. Shelley paused, listening to the person on the other end. Okay, I'll let her know. I'll talk to you later. She set her phone, set her cell phone on the coffee table. It was Jack. He wanted to make sure you made it okay. I downed my wine in a series of quick gulps. The sound of his name wound my stomach into a knot and made my heart race. More wine? I went to the kitchen to retrieve the bottle without waiting for her response. Have you talked to anyone since you left, Shelley asked. Shelley's glass didn't require much of a top-up, but I poured into both glasses anyway and put the bottle on the table as I reclaimed my spot on the sofa. No, I was trying to forget Evergreen, remember? Talking to any of them would have defeated the purpose. But you talk to me all the time. Yeah, but that's different. You're more like a sister than a friend. I still talk, was still talking to mom and dad all the time. My voice softened as I corrected myself. The moisture of tears built at the corners of my eyes. Well, I thought it might be nice to have the others come back here after the funeral. A private thing, just for the inner circle. I know Dee and the guys will get together after anyway, so it might as well be here. The thought of seeing the friends I had left behind tied my stomach in knots. Yeah, sure, if you want, I shrugged. But I'm not sure any of them will be happy to have me here, have me there. I pulled my knees to my chest and wrapped one arm around them. They all loved mom and dad. I'm pretty sure they're mourning as much as I am. Yes, we're all grieving, Liz, which is why we should all be together. And no, not everyone is super pleased with you, but we're adults. And I would hope Jack and, Jan Jack and Deanna would be able to put their feelings aside for one night. I suppose you're right. 
you know them better than I do now. So if you think it'll be okay, then I trust you. I covered a yawn with my free hand. A conversation shifted to lighter topics and my second glass of wine emptied at a much more reasonable pace. And now I'm curious to know why arriving right on midnight is cutting it close. What do they expect to happen? So yeah, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of Evergreen. Stephanie's website is Stephanie Galay Writer. That's Galay, G-A-L-A-Y. So stephaniegalayrider.wordpress.com. And like I said, you can find Evergreen on Amazon. Now that wraps up the second, even more crazy, broken recorder session. I hope you found these samples tantalizing. Thanks so much for bearing with me while I deal with all these technical issues, and I hope I can get things back to normal soon. I'm not quite sure yet what I'm going to do with next week if I if my recorder hasn't arrived yet, but I I am committed to making it something interesting. <laughs> so stick around, come back, and uh, see what's in store. I'd like to thank once again uh, Leslie. Mari, Nicole, and Stephanie for sharing your words this week. It's been a real pleasure hosting some of my fellow writers on my podcast. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon, and thank you to the original six. And again, thank you so much to you for your patience and for listening. Take care of yourselves. Now, go be fantastic.